Okay, guys. Go back to the Garden of Amuna series, and uh, I want to take a moment to thank Jason for sponsoring tonight's refreshments. And tonight's topic is about how to question God. And why do we pick the topic of how to question God? And the reason is because this week's Torah portion begins in the middle of a conversation. Last week, God sent Moses to Pharaoh and to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. God argued with Moses about this mission for seven days at the burning bush. And God told him that I'm sending you to do a mission of saving, of goodness. Parenthetically speaking, because it's not tonight's topic, but in, in the divine plan of freedom of choice, we have a right to tell Hashem, we have a right to tell God that you have many messengers and don't use me when you want to hurt another being. So what happens to people is between them and God. Our becoming a messenger, to quote the language of the Alter Rebbe, it's our bad choice to allow and sign up for a mission, being a messenger of doing evil. We have a right and an obligation to tell God that when you want to hurt someone, use someone else for a messenger. Me, I'm signing up just to do shlichut of goodness and kindness. Moses signed up for that type of shlichut. He signed up for the shlichut of being able to be a messenger of goodness to the entire Jewish people, taking them out of suffering, out of Egypt. And what happens? All of a sudden he sees that this was not what he signed up for. He comes to Pharaoh and tells Pharaoh in the name of God, let my people go. God warned Moses that Pharaoh is not going to let the people go. He's going to say no until there's the plagues and the wonders and everything. But what God did not warn Moses, at least we don't see it in the text, is that things are going to get worse when he begins his shlichot. And that's what Moses is taken back by. He goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, you guys have way too much time on your hand. And that's why you're dreaming of vacation, to travel for three days and bring sacrifices. And therefore, what we need to do is we need to load up the work. So you guys don't have time to sit and daydream. So what he does is he tells the taskmasters that from here on you will no more supply the, the goods for them to work with. They're going to have to get their own goods, create their own mortar, their own bricks, and do not lessen the quota. So as it is, it was murderous, no pun intended, and now it gets worse. And when they come running to Pharaoh and they say, why? why? Why are you doing this? And Pharaoh says, because you guys are starting to talk about vacation and slaughtering and God and freedom. Obviously, you guys have way too much time on your hand. And the next thing that happens is Moses and Aaron come out of Pharaoh and are greeted by the elders. And the elders harshly tell Moses and Aaron, may God judge you for what you just did to us.
you place the sword in Pharaoh's hand to kill even more of our children, kill even more of us, and make things worse. That's what led up to Moses at the end of last week's Torah portion questioning God. And he questions sternly. Why did you do bad? In the opening of this week's Torah portion, you know that there are different names that God uses. Seven names, ten names. And the name Elohim is a name of judgment, harshness. If you look at the opening of this verse, this week's Torah portion, it doesn't say Vayomer Hashem El Moshe. It doesn't say Vayidaber Hashem El Moshe. It says Vayidaber, which is already harsh. Elohim, which is Givura, judgment, strictness, El Moshe. Rashi immediately wants to explain to us why the word Elohim, which is Din, judgment. And he says, that Hashem said, because you spoke to me in a fashion of Why did you do evil? You said you were going to save them, save them. You didn't save them. It only got worse. Why did you do bad? So you spoke to me that way. I'm answering you back. Elohim, judgment. So Moses questioned God, and he questioned God, shall we use the word aggressively? Let's talk about some other things we know in history. Who else argued with God, questioned God? Who else told God the words, Khalila Lacha? You should know that word from Chas Shalom, same type of tune. Who's the one that told God, Khalila Lacha? Abraham. When God notifies Abraham that he's planning to turn over the Sodom and uh, the whole five cities over there, what happens? Abraham questions Hashem. Are you going to punish the righteous together with the wicked? It is mundane. It is not appropriate for God, the God of justice, the God of compassion, to do such a thing. If you look later on, throughout the books of prophets, we have prophets that question slash argued with God. I myself have seen the Rebbe by Fabrengans talk in such a fashion of bitterly questioning why Mashiach isn't here, bitterly, bitterly questioning why Jews are suffering. I remember one case where there was a lady that was murdered in Crown Heights, and the Rebbe spoke then after services, a very painful, very painful talk. And it wasn't giving us Musa, it was more in the fashion of the way Moses spoke to God. And God begins this Torah portion in the middle of the conversation. Last week he started answering chapter 6 verse 1. This week's Torah portion begins with chapter 6 verse 2. God's in the middle of answering Moses and I have appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I made a promise. They had to trust me. They didn't see my promise, but you will see my promise. So obviously we see here that our most righteous leaders have questioned God. So my question for tonight is, am I also allowed to question God? In my conversations with God, in my personal life, how about, not just in my personal life, how about when I see suffering that's hard for the human mind to digest, that this can come from a good, just, and compassionate God. We see righteous people suffer. We see innocent children suffer. We see suffering. 
not just that of mankind's work, as in war and torturing. We see natural disasters that are going on over the world. Killing, killing people right, left, and center. Kind of like Abraham said, righteous and not righteous together. Innocent children. Do I have a right to question God? Am I allowed to question God? So that's what we're here to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about this in many different layers. We're going to start first with layer number one. There is two ways to question God. You'll always come across this in conversation. One question isn't a question, it's actually an accusation. I'm sure many of you have gone through this. It happens all the time, it happens between friends, it happens in the domestic scene where someone throws an accusation and then asks you, no, are you going to answer me? And your answer is, I didn't hear a question, I heard an accusation. Accusation, you don't answer, a question gets answered. Many of us talk that way to God. All of a sudden we become mighty with an attitude. And we're not so much asking God as pointing a finger at God. Those type of questions don't get answered. Because like I shared with you, in our own lives we do that. I didn't hear a question, I heard an accusation. What's the answer? Then there's a different type of question which doesn't come from the accusation point of view. Rather, it comes from the open up my mind and heart. I'm not understanding this. I'm not understanding this not just on intellectual level. I'm not understanding this on an emotional level. I'm not understanding this in very deep layers. Let's talk about an interesting story. There was a man called Rabzusha Anapoli. He was the, the brother of Rabbi Lemelech Melezensk, who many of you probably know his book called The Noim Lemelech. Rabzusha Anapoli, one of the students of the Magid, no small person, a man who performed miracles. When he was not able to understand something, and there's a whole story that leads up to this story, they were having a question about a certain uh, um, meat and if something happened, if it's kosher or it's not kosher. And in the shul, the Magid, the Mazucha Magid has his students talking about it, questioning right, left, center, you know, back and forth. And Abzusha didn't understand. Abzusha went home and he sat down and he started crying. And the famous words were, Hashem, Hashem, please, Zusha doesn't understand. Please open my mind and my heart to be able to understand your Torah. That was in a question of Kashrut. But to Rab Zusha, this wasn't just a question of being a scholar or not being a scholar. To Rab Zusha, it was a question of God's Torah. And God gave us His Torah. And what deeper way can we connect to God than understanding His Torah? So my not understanding His Torah isn't a question of whether I'm a scholar or not. It's a defect in my relationship with God. And therefore, God, please open up my mind and heart to complete that relationship. Allow me to understand this piece of Torah too. A very, very 
different type of question than the accusatory question. The question of pointing the finger at your brain, pointing the finger at your heart, and telling Hashem, okay, let's start with the foundation. The foundation is that God is just, God is good, and God is compassionate. That is a given. End of story. Now that we have that as a given, let's go to step B. I don't understand how such a horrific story can be an act of justice, an act of goodness, or an act of compassion. But one second. We just a second ago said that we're going to lay down a concrete, absolute foundation. That Hashem is good, and Hashem is kind, Hashem is just. And now, all of a sudden I have a question. And, and let's be clear. Let's not get into the issue, does God make war, does man make war. Let's talk about the tsunami. There isn't many people we can blame for the tsunami. Let's talk about floods, let's talk about hurricanes, let's talk about tornadoes. These are clearly acts of God, natural disasters. And there's no way that my mind can appreciate more than that. I don't think my mind wants to appreciate that that could be an act of justice, an act of compassion in seven seconds flat, tens of thousands, or let's up the numbers, just completely dead in a moment, destroy the city. And there we come to God and we ask the question. But once you've set the foundation in absolute form, not in relativity, it's not that God is good, just, and compassion when I understand Him to be good, just, and compassion. That's not what the absolute concrete foundation said. It isn't that today God's good because I understand everything God did today is good. Tomorrow something God forbid is going to happen and God's no more good because I don't understand that God's good. So my approach is that God is good, God is kind, God is just, God is compassion. There is no way that Avrumi, as he stands today, can even entertain the thought or the desire to understand that these horrific situations are good, just, and compassion. And I have a question. But once you've set the absolute foundation, taking God out of being the product and creation of my judgment God and what God is is absolute my understanding is a process of relativity what I didn't understand today I do understand tomorrow and what I thought I have an answer for today I will tomorrow understand that that answer cannot be a good answer because I have a question on that answer so my mind and heart are the products of relativity. God is absolute. I cannot put the absolute on the scale to be measured and judged by relativity. And therefore my approach is the approach of reposition. And when you have that approach, not only isn't 
a question, a problem with faith, it actually becomes the fertile ground to deepen your faith. Because even when I have the question and don't have the answer, and I'm going to sleep with the question without the answer, I still sleep assured. Because God, whether I do or don't understand, whether my heart could or could not feel, God remains just. God remains good. And God remains compassionate. And the only question I have as I lie myself down to sleep after working hours and trying to figure something out, the only question I do have is on my mind and heart. What is with my mind and heart? What is wrong with it that it cannot see the absolute goodness, justice of God? I'm going to tell you a very powerful Hasidic story, usually to be said by Fabrengans, because it's hard to explain this story here. But I'm going to share with you the story. The previous Rebbe had a stroke. The previous Rebbe could not speak clearly. There were two people that understood the Rebbe. One was our Rebbe, his son-in-law, and the second one was one of his secretariat, Rabbi Simpson. And what the previous Rebbe said in private audiences were translated by Rabbi Simpson or if in certain cases by the Rebbe. It's interesting because just this past month a classmate of mine, I don't know where they fished this up from, actually sent me a recording of the previous Rebbe speaking. But this was already in America post-stroke. There was a great Chassid. I believe it was the famous Rabbi Yochanan Gordon. And he said by a Fabrengen amongst Chassidim, look how coarse and impure the world has become that we do not understand our Rebbe. What an interesting thing. I mean, simply speaking, what are you pointing to the world? The world is normal. The previous Rebbe had a stroke. The previous Rebbe couldn't speak. But in the Chassid's mind, <laughs> a Rebbe is absolute. So if there's a situation where we can't understand the Rebbe, it must be us. How coarse we have become that we're not even capable of understanding what our Rebbe is saying to us. Again, that's a very extreme case, but that does let you know where the heart of a faithful Chassid is. When good plus good equals bad, first good being Hashem, first good being Tzadikim, second good being me, and good plus good is supposed to equal good, but somehow along the line it equals bad. So which good are we going to question whether it's really good? The first good, Hashem, or the second good, me? You know that famous uh, joke, you know, when I ask a rabbi, I ask a new, you're going to come to Minyu, you're going to come Shabbos, all of a sudden everyone becomes faithful with me. And me, it's Hashem, if God wants. <laughs> so the answer obviously is always the same, God wants. I want to know if you want. God is good. The question is if we're good. Our Rebbe speaks clear. The question is whether we are refined to understand. What God does is compassionate. The question is whether my brain and my heart is transparent enough, clean of ego, clean of prerequisites, clean of what I have decided God has to look like. Am I capable of understanding and feeling? 
That type of questioning will never weaken faith. It will only strengthen faith. I'm going to make a very radical comment here. Many times, people come with a whole story that the reason why this marriage is, is, is going to have to be, God forbid, dissolved is because of religion. One became religious, the other one not religious, and it just can't be together, and they're the kosher, the mikveh, the all nine yards. 44 years old, I am yet to find a relationship that was dissolved because of religion. I will tell you that when there's other issues, one of the great finger pointers is religion. But those who are menschlich and those who know how to get along, I'm yet to find in those families religion caused divorce. I know a family, he, a blessed memory, I know a family that was in Venezuela, she was a shaitel, she was Shomer Shabbos, she was one of the only, she is, so God should bless her, she's one of the only two families that we, she was eight by, and the husband was a doctor, got into his car Shabbos morning and drove to work, and I wish upon all of us the type of marriage and respect and love that they had for each other. Amazing. I want to become a little more extreme what I'm about to say. There are many Jews, and by the way, I completely am taking Holocaust survivors out of what I'm about to say. They're not part of what I'm going to say. Outside of that, so many people talk about how they don't get along with the faith because how can they believe in such a God and how this and how that. A more sensitive issue to me personally. I've heard a lot of things from young Lubavitcher boys about what happened to them post-1994, the third of Thomas when they ever passed away. I wanted to say again, I'm yet to find a person that left religion because of something God did without prior issues. The way we question God has nothing what to do with what God does. It has to do with how we view Hashem how we view ourselves. Like I said, good plus good equals good. And when the equal sign is bad, which good do we question? Which do we put a finger at? The approach of asking God and aggressively asking God, Why did you do bad to this nation? Let's go further. You tricked me. Almost lied to me. You told me that Pharaoh's heart wasn't going to let them go. But did you ever tell me that I was going to be the cause of so much suffering? Mind you, we're taught by our sages. When the Jews in Egypt did not meet their quota, children were used as bricks. Now put this into the equation of what Moses has to sleep with tonight. Moses could ask a bunch of questions to God. And yet, 
as he left Pharaoh's palace and as the Jews attacked him do you think for a moment Moses was wondering whether he signed up to the wrong religion talking to the wrong God do you think for a moment Moses on a faith level questioned God So the answer is to the question we started tonight. Of course we're allowed to question God. I'm going to present to you soon that not only are we allowed to question God. The whole reason why God puts us in certain situations is so that we will shake up and ask questions. And maybe even aggressively ask questions. But does that have anything to do with our faith? And when I have a question, I'm weak in faith. And when I have an answer, my faith becomes solidified. As they say in French, to such a faith. The faith that weakens with a question and strengthens with an answer isn't faith. Questions and answers talk to the brain, not to the heart. The heart deals on a different language. Faith is a different language. So let's go to layer number two. Let's understand. Why does God bring us to these situations. I want to up the ante. How many in this room have realized that as they become Baal Teshuva or Baalist Teshuva, things get worse? How many times do we realize that now the question gets even bigger? God, what kind of Chilul Hashem are you making? What are you showing everyone around me? God, how am I supposed to be understand this? I didn't ask you to deposit, deposit a million dollars in my account when I became Shomer Shabbos. But I wasn't looking forward to lose my job and then go on foreclosure. I mean, I heard the rabbi when I was there at the party, the first porn party, drinking away. I heard somewhere in the background him saying, in the name of God, and if in my statutes you shall work, walk. I will give you goodness. What happened to me? Why is it, Rabbi, as I become more and more religious, there's less and less fish in the pond that I can date? So why does Hashem put us in these situations? Why does Hashem put us through the situation where we, if we do, allow ourselves to think and feel? If we don't think that religion is all about suppression of my questions, which I presented tonight, the last thing religion is, is a suppression of questions. A question suppressed is not a question that doesn't exist. It's a question that's waiting to explode in your face. So if we're taught that we do ask questions, why does Hashem put us in situations where the questions we ask are so deep? It isn't like a Gemara question. Did I ever tell you that story? <laughs> Gemara says in, in Brochus, just like you make blessings for God on good things, so you bless God on things that are not good. No. There's a story about this Rosh Yeshiva that he didn't want the whole fundraising bit. He wanted to have his Yeshiva set up on, you know, on certain investments that not him and not anyone is yeshiva have to worry about fundraising we'll sit all day and we learn there'll be a dormitory the bachum will be taken care of and everything will be beautiful and he did he was successful and he would do his little stuff and then he had an inheritance where 
he was offered a deal that's a do or die. If this deal goes well, his yeshiva is set. If the deal does not go well, he's of kahak to service. Everything's gone. He's thinking to himself, I'm not doing this for me to be rich. I'm doing this for God's yeshiva, for Torah. Of course God's going to stand by me. He goes with the investment with absolute faith and trust. It's beautiful. Make the long story short. Yeah, I'm sure you figure out where the story's going. It went belly up. It was a whole lumber thing and it didn't work out and it was not good. So they approached his protege, his top yeshiva student, and they told him, be careful how you break the news to him because this, this is a health issue. This could be very dangerous, but you're going to have to break him the news that uh, everything went gone, everything went south. Look, the Bokhah approaches Rosh Yeshiva and he asks Rosh Yeshiva, I have a question to you for you in the Gemara. Ambrochus. The Gemara said that just like you thank, you thank Hashem and bless Hashem for the good, you thank and bless Hashem for the bad. So he asks him, Rosh Yeshiva, when we thank Hashem for the good, we sing, we dance by a wedding, you don't just uh, make a bracha. You're dancing, you're drinking, it's a simcha. So what is the Gemara saying? That when you thank Hashem for something catastrophic, you're supposed to dance and sing? Kishem Shemabarachim? Exactly the way you bless is exactly where you thank him for difficult moments? The Rosh Shiva says, yeah, yeah, that's Pshat the Gemara. And the Bacha looked down and said, uh, Rosh Shiva, start dancing. Rosh Shiva immediately understood what happened and he fainted. They started bringing him through with smelling salt and everything. He came through once, fainted again. Finally, they started, you know, pulling him out of it. He looks up to that student and says, You know something? I don't either understand that Gemara. Yesterday he understood it. Because yesterday it was just an idealistic Gemara. What's so hard to understand that Gemara? One who never had to dance for suffering, it's very easy to give a share. And yeah, when your house gets foreclosed, you have to dance. And when you lose your job, you have to make a kiddush. It's a Gemara. That's a very easy share to give until you get a notice from the bank, God forbid, or until you get the slip that says, uh, we love you dearly, but find another job. All of a sudden, the Rosh Hashiva had a question on the Gemara. So the question I'm asking is, why does Hashem put us into that situation? Why? The answer, the answer I'm going to suggest here is an answer that we all know about relationships. Relationships that only had good moments are fragile relationships. Because when things are good, we don't need to dig deep. And I have not yet met a person who digs deep when he doesn't have to. We're just like plants. The verse says, It's a question actually in the verse. But we read it, our sages read it as a statement. For man is like the tree of the field. The trees, the best thing that can happen in agriculture is that when the little plants begin their life, weather should be rough. Because then they're forced to dig deep roots. But if we plant when things are good, and therefore the trees don't, as they're growing up, they don't dig deep roots, what ends up happening is 
that later when the weather gets nasty, they don't have the strength to withstand. Because good times does not push us. And if we're not pushed, we don't go deep. It's only when relationships get bumpy, when we need to question, when we need to stop and think, when we need to go ahead and make this balance sheets of assets and liabilities and question whether we want this relationship. We need to search in the relationship. It's those situations, those painful situations that push us out of laziness, cruise control, and make us dig deep roots. It's in those moments when we struggle with what Hashem is doing to us that we define a deeper relationship with Hashem. And I want to go back to what I said before. I am yet to find a marriage that was dissolved, really dissolved because of religion, and I'm yet to find a person who walked out on God because of something God did to him without any prior issues from their own side. So when you have that healthy foundation and Hashem says, you know, this boy or this girl has been living uh, a little bit in cruise control, let's wake him up a little bit. Let's put a little bump in the road for them. And when you hit that bump, if the foundation that you have as a yid, your faith, your trust in God is real, not lip service, then what will end up happening is that these bumps in the road will only wake you up and create a deeper relationship. So what I'm suggesting today is that when we have issues which begets of us not to suppress our feelings, not to suppress our questions. We need to ask questions. We need to ask aggressive questions. Why did you do bad to this nation? And it begins with a preface. You promised to save them. Save them, you didn't save them. You made it worse. Why did you make it worse? You promised me that if I returned to you, God, you would take care of me. Ever since I've turned to you, things have gotten worse and worse and worse. And when we ask these questions, but we ask it from the right perspective, realizing that good plus good equals good, and if it equals bad, it's the latter good, i.e., moi, that I'm going to question. What am I not getting here? What am I not seeing here? What seed of depth of goodness lies within this if I can just crack and dispose of the shell? I want to repeat that last sentence. What depth and goodness lies within the situation if I'm just capable of cracking and disposing of its shell? That's what faithful questions, aggressive questions do. They allow me to know that what I'm seeing is the shell and I need to crack the shell to get into the goodness and fruit that lies within so Hashem puts us in this situation so that we're forced to go to a deeper level. That song that we sang, Ani won't work now. We need more than a song here. 
We need to really sing it, not from the lips, from the heart. I need to really ask myself, all the times that I spoke about faith and trust, is it just paper thin? Or is there flesh beneath it? I'll never know until I'm forced to know. I've shared this with you before, I'm going to share it again. It is impossible to learn how to swim on dry land. And it's very scary when you first go into the water knowing that you don't know how to swim. I want to go to next level. We spoke about level number one, whether you're allowed to question or not allowed to question. I presented you to you tonight that a suppressed question is very ungodly, very un-Jewish. Yes, not only are we allowed to, it is mandatory that we question with our mind and our heart and even aggressively so. Just remember the foundation before you begin questioning. God is absolute. He doesn't go from compassionate to not compassionate as you question and answer. God is, to quote last week's Parsha, I am what I am. Not a question is what you're capable of understanding or not. God's not changing with our questions and He's not changing with our answers. So we point the finger at our mind and heart. Level number one. Level number two. Why does God put us in the situations to have these questions? Deep questions. Not just Talmudic questions of academic value. Deep questions of pain. And what I share with you is, the purpose of these questions is to get deeper into our relationship. It helps us crack the shell and dispose of the shell of the situation, which is quite rough and ugly, to get to the depth and seed and goodness and fruit that lies within. Now I'm going to take it to the third level. What's interesting is that when we do question, and when we do aggressively question, as long as it's with the foundation of absolute faith, not only don't we weaken our faith, we actually quite often end up changing the situation. The most powerful words of prayer is the words, son, may it be your will. Let's talk about what those words mean. If someone is, God forbid, sick, why is he sick? Because God has willed him to be sick. And if I'm praying for this person to have a full shalema, what am I asking? I'm asking God to please change your mind, change your will. May he who willed him to be sick now will for him to have a speedy and complete recovery. That's exactly what prayer is all about. Because everything that happens is the will of God. So if I'm asking for something that ha is happening to change, I'm asking God to change His will. You hear that song? That is the beauty and omnipotent power of prayer. That happens not when we're just willing to accept, ask no questions, don't be aggressive about it, the person who just accepts is a person who lives in that situation. Suppressed or not suppressed. I'm not even going to judge the person. But a person 
who doesn't, you know, they tell an interesting story. So you share with you another story. Story time tonight. The story of a certain chassid who owned a, uh, a horse. And this horse, he was a balagola, he was a wagon driver. And every single year, when it come to his Rebbe for the holidays, and then before he left, he would ask for the Rebbe a blessing. He would ask the Rebbe, please, I want to ask for a blessing that the horse should be healthy and be able to do its job. That's my source of Parnassah. I'm asking a blessing for the horse. And the Rebbe would bless that the horse should be able to do everything okay, fine. One year, the horse died. That year he came for the holidays. He asked the Rebbe, Rebbe, I'm in deep trouble. My source of Parnassah just died on me. And I'm asking for a bracha of Parnassah. And the Rebbe gave him a powerful blessing of Parnassah. And from that moment on, the person became wealthy. One of the students of the Rebbe asked him, what just happened with this person? It's very noticeable that this year was, wow. And the Rebbe explained very simple. Until now, he was limiting my blessings to his horse. He asked me for a blessing for the horse. I blessed his horse. But now that finally, that horse got out of the way. He asked me for a blessing of Parnosa. Oh, now I can give him a blessing for Parnosa. Sometimes when we accept a certain situation and not question it, and not aggressively question it, and not ask Hashem, you promised to do good. Why did you do bad to your people? Sometimes by not asking that question, we're locking ourselves into the situation. And many times, especially by tzaddikin, when they're pushed and squeezed, and the way you push and squeeze a tzaddik is not by making him suffer, it's by making others suffer. I've heard that a tzaddik can't take that, they can't tolerate that, it hurts them. So then they start arguing with Hashem. Moses wasn't suffering. Moses was able to come and go. Moses didn't have his children put in the wheel. Moses wasn't whipped. Moses didn't have that. But when Moses saw a Jew suffering, he reacted. The same thing with us in our own private lives. The same thing for us, for people we love. We were not willing to accept. Yes, I have faith in God. And yes, I have faith that God is just and God is good and God is compassionate. But what's happening right now is not sweet and not pleasant. It's not what we call a Chabad revealed goodness. And if it's not revealed goodness, then I must accept that the reason why God put me into this situation is not to accept it. It's to aggressively question. Why does that work? Now, level three... I'm not asking you why we're put in the situation of asking the question. I'm not asking you whether we have a right to ask the question. I'm now asking of you, how come we're put in the situation to ask and through that change the situation? You hear that so? And here's what I'm going to share with you. Our relationship with God has layers. And the rule in Kabbalah is that God reacts to us on the layer that we choose to interrelate with Him. When I am only willing to be involved with God and allow God into my life on an emotional level, a feel-good level, to quote what I've told my teachers and what so many people have told me, when I feel it, I'll do it. 
if that's the rules of the game that you want to play with God, okay. That's the rules. It's a two-way street. When I move up a notch, and it's not about what I want or don't want. It's what I know is right and I know is not right. I've moved it up from the theory to the intellectual. I'm going to learn and I'm going to stand. I'm going to understand and when I understand, I'm going to act. But when I'm put into a situation where my logic just cannot accept it, then over there I can't relate to Hashem. I mean, after all, Hashem wants me to use my, my Kepala. He gave me a brain for a reason. So when it makes sense to me, I want to even go further. When it makes sense to me from a Talmudic approach, I really believe that the Talmud's telling me that this far you don't have to go. Where does it say in the Talmud that I have to move out of New York? I move to Florida. I have kids, I have responsibility. I could have presented a Talmudic approach that is probably prohibited for me to move to Florida. <laughs> you know that in the summertime, because of lack of modesty on the streets, we all say Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Father. Every Shabbos is a chapter. We brought down once a very great chassid from Michigan to Florida to bring with us in the middle of the winter. Two minutes after he landed, he turned around to the rabbi to pick him up and said, Mir dachzech, as in Florida, dach mezogin pirkei ovis I believe that in Florida, you need to say ethics of your fathers all year round. Not so simple to move into Florida. So if I'm only willing to serve God on the intellectual what makes sense to me, fine, fine. But expect the same back. What happens when God puts me into a situation where I must go through step number one and step number two and step number three of the 12-step program? I must admit that the great genius of Rumi has to surrender. I just can't figure this out. I don't know how I got myself into this mess. I don't understand how I'm going to get out of my mess. I don't understand why this is right, why did it even happen, and yada, yada, yada. Need to all of a sudden relate to a higher power on a whole new level. It ain't intellect. Now you're being forced to take your relationship with God beyond what intellect, human intellect, will render as right and wrong. Now I'm going to have to admit that when every fiber of my being is screaming, God, you are wrong, I'm going to have to let that go, surrender that. All I can say is, Hashem, you hear that song. I know, I believe that you're a good God, you're a just God, you're a compassionate God, you hear that song. I do deserve, I don't deserve, I am to blame, I'm not to blame, you hear that song. I'm not coming to you logically, I'm not taking you to court, and when I be aggressive with you, by the way, just for the record, it was Moses who in the beginning of the Torah portion said that now I know why the Jews are suffering. It was Moses that questioned God. And even if you tell me that I am the one, I am the messenger, on what schut, on what merit should they get out? By the way, God doesn't give them a schut. God says it's because I promised their forefathers. That same Moses 
who at whatever level justified what the Jews were going through turns around to God with an aggressiveness why did you do bad to these people because that question didn't come from the brain just and when we push that far to be able to give up I want I don't want I feel I don't feel we're pushing it further to give up the I understand I don't understand it makes sense it doesn't make sense the part himself said this is the ruling but I pushed even beyond that and pain pushes me to the point of real surrender and all I can do is pray to God you hear that song and aggressively pray to God what I've done is that I've taken myself in this relationship to a different level and when I take myself to a deep, deeper level what does Hashem do? let's quote the verse Hashem Tzilcha God is your shadow God reflects you. And when you take yourself to that level, God's right there with you. God doesn't meet a, miss a beat on the dance floor. You change, God's right there changing the steps with you. So when God puts us in this position that the steps I was dancing to until now just doesn't match to this new beat, and I've got to change my dance. Feelings won't work here. Intellect won't work here. We're on a whole different level. A logicless outcry of a prayer and aggressiveness to God. God immediately reacts. You hear that song? So guys, let's wrap it up. Wow. Let's wrap it up. Number one, is it okay to question God? And aggressively so. The answer is yes. Not only it's okay, it's actually mandatory. However, we need to have a foundation. Before you begin with the questions of relativity, set the foundation of absoluteness. God is good, God is just, God is compassionate. The first good of the mathematical equation is absolute. The second good is relativity. So we're going to point the finger at ourselves, not at God. And we'll ask the question. Step number two that we spoke about today is why does God put us in these situations where we have to ask these painful, aggressive questions? And the answer is because that creates depth in our relationship with God. It's these questions which allow me to crack and dispose of the ugly shell and delve into the opportunity and the blessing and the seed and the fruit and the goodness that lies within. For ultimately, God is good, God is just. There's always going to be a seed and a fruit of opportunity and goodness there. Level number three. And the question changes the situation. You hear that song? Because when I can't rely on my feelings and I can't rely on my intellect, and I'm forced into a very deep relationship with God, an outcry. That creates, you hear that song. And that's it for tonight, guys. Thanks.